I am so thankful to be an American. And in spite of all of our troubles, in spite of all of our difficulties, in spite even of the sin that's part of this land, I believe it is still the best country in the world. And I would say this, I see it as a blessing and part of the grace of God that I'm allowed to be part of this country. And um, of all the countries in the world, I know there are people who are not from this land and they love their countries. But something that I have noticed is how often people choose to come to this country from other countries because it is such a great country. And we welcome them. And for those of you who've made that choice, we welcome you. Isn't it great to be part of a free land like this where there are opportunities? I know there are troubles. I know that there are difficulties. But just think of what this country has done over the centuries. It has been a hub for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been a place where people have been able to come and worship the Lord freely. And though we are experiencing some setbacks as far as our exercise of freedom is concerned, we are still a land in which we can gather and worship the true and the living God without fear, and we can proclaim his name, and we can proclaim it perhaps much more freely than we think we can. My question is, are you using that freedom? See, it's great to be an American but it's much greater to be a citizen of heaven and to know that in that land, there's no economic problem. There is, uh, there's no limitation of the freedom to worship our God. There are no bad decisions being made. And the ruler of that land is a perfect king. Holy, holy holy. And so we've got the best of both worlds. Here we are in a free land. And if you know Christ as your savior, you're heading for an even better land. I know we are um, somewhat drawn by our memories today. And as Pastor Steve had mentioned earlier, I imagine each of you can remember where you were and what you were doing on September 11th. And Debbie and I were talking about that as we were driving in this morning, where we were, and she was teaching in school, and it happened to be my day off, and I was waiting for a friend to come to my house and put on the TV, and I thought there was a fire. And then all of a sudden, everything started to come together. And now we look back over the last 10 years, and we recognize that a lot has happened in response to that. You've all been disrupted in your travel because of September 11th. We've all had, uh, essentially, our hearts broken because of the conflicts that have followed. Many have given up their lives, and some of us in here have lost loved ones in the defense of our freedom, and we've had to take the fight to them. And uh, I think rightfully so. I look back at the perpetrator of that event on uh, September 11th, and he has faced the Creator, as we all will. The bad news is he has faced the Creator not knowing him. The good news is that no one has ever committed a sin too great to be forgiven. 
and to be given the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why it's so great to be an American. I can talk about that. And I don't have to worry about being arrested yet. Though that day possibly could come. Well, our memories are important. They, they do help us go back in time and they help us look at things. And today we're, we've reached another milestone, I guess you might say, in that we are concluding a study that we began many months ago in the book of Acts. And today is the, the final time that we have to look into this book together in this particular series. And it causes me once again to remember. And as you look back into this book, there are so many things that have happened, so many events that have occurred, some of them wonderful events, others not so great events, things that, that are, are part of the reflection of our being in a sin-cursed world. And as I look back on that chapter one, uh, the very first chapter of, of this book, we, we talked about perhaps one of the greatest events in all of history, and that was the ascension of Christ when he came back and he told his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses. And then he said that he would be coming back and he would reign one day as the king. And in the second chapter, we have the enabling power that he sends with the the ministry of the Holy Spirit who descended and came into the lives of those who know the Savior and became the seal of their redemption until that day when we are finally redeemed in our our, our very uh, experience as well as in our position. And so the Spirit of God came to be that seal and that indweller and the one who can fill and teach and guide and direct our lives. And then... After he came, the church began to develop. In the third chapter, what we saw was how the church began to spread and the message that the apostles now reaching out and making disciples as they are reaching out into the world around them, the the church begins to develop. But it doesn't develop without some resistance and without some hardship because in the fourth chapter, you recall, Peter and John were arrested and they were thrown into prison. And they were there because of that personal faith and trust that they had in Christ as their Savior. Then we saw some new things taking place that we had not experienced before. We saw Christians having their lives taken from them because of their rebellion and their disobedience. And the very first believers that we know of that died were Ananias and Sapphira there in that fifth chapter. And so the the church was warned and it was given notice that this is to be a place in which the Lord is glorified and we dare not play with sin. In the next chapter, the Lord begins to develop for us a leadership program. And the first deacons are recognized and and they are called to be servants to the body and they become involved in the ministry in such a way that the apostles are set free to go out and continue to spread the gospel. And then we come to the next chapter, which is a very dark day in history and yet a day that would be replicated many, many times over. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, gives up his life because of his personal faith and trust in Christ. 
when we come to the eighth chapter, we find that the Lord is beginning to spread the gospel now beyond the environs of Jerusalem. And we find this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from the prophet and he is approached by Philip and Philip explains to him the truths concerning Christ and the Ethiopian eunuch becomes a follower of Christ. In the ninth chapter, a great event takes place where the apostle Paul, who at that time is Saul, the persecutor of the church, is confronted by Christ and he sees this blinding light from heaven and the voice that speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul recognizes that the one against whom he had been fighting for all of these years is really the true Messiah and his life changes completely. In that 10th chapter, Peter re-enters the picture And he sees this vision that comes down from God with a sheet that's filled with all types of unclean animals. And the Lord says, Peter, take and eat. And Peter says, "I no, Lord, I've never touched anything unclean, but there has been a change. And the Lord says, now, what I have cleansed, don't you call unclean. And the Lord is sending him a message. It's not a dietary message. It's a message that says this. You as the Jews thought that the that God's relationship with mankind would always be about you as a people. But the truth of the matter is, it's not about you as a people. It's about one who would come from you, the person of Jesus Christ, and he is capable not only of providing salvation for the Jew, but now also for the Gentile. And Peter is sent to Cornelius, a Gentile. And Cornelius responds in faith and trusts Christ as his Savior. In the chapter that follows that, the message of the gospel goes out and it reaches a a city called Antioch. And Antioch is a place that becomes the hub of Christian activity. Prior to this, it had been Jerusalem. But there's a great deal of trouble going on in Jerusalem. And the message of the gospel is, is being stifled by virtue of events that are taking place there. So in the, in the city of Antioch, now the disciples who have trusted Christ are beginning to recognize the, the privilege and the responsibility that they have to spread the gospel and to send it to the far reaches of the globe. The next chapter helps affirm to the believers in Antioch and to the believers in Jerusalem what God is capable of doing on behalf of his people because Peter is arrested and he is placed in prison. And so the church, not just a little gathering, but but all of the, the people who had become followers of Christ, they begin to pray on his behalf. And the Lord performs a miracle and releases Peter from prison. And, you know, as I, as I remember these things and I think back, it, to me it strikes me funny how Peter came to the door and knocked and then the people said, oh, you know, the little girl came to answer the door and she says, hey, Peter's out there. And they said, oh, you must have seen uh, a vision or something. I don't know what you saw. And they don't believe it. And yet that's exactly what they were asking for. And then they realized that God had answered their prayer. Well, with that having occurred, a whole change now takes place in the, in the, the drift and the flow 
of the book of Acts because in the 13th chapter, the Apostle Paul is directed to begin a journey that we will identify now as the first missionary journey. And it's going to be spoken of in chapters 13 and 14. And it's going to be the Apostle Paul, and he is going to uh, go with, uh, let me see, Pete, uh, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. They are the ones who now begin to spread the the gospel into other parts of the globe that have not been reached yet with the message of the gospel. And so they go into this area of Galatia, uh, as it as it was known in those days, and they begin to spread the gospel. And they're gone for a period of two years, but then they come back and they give a report to the church. And that report that's given to the church is an encouraging report because people are responding to the gospel and they're coming forward in in faith and they're receiving the Savior and living for him. But because the church is being developed, there are some problems that have now come up. And there were the Judaizers who had been trying to convince the Gentiles that they had to be essentially followers of the Jewish traditions in order to genuinely be saved. And so this began to trouble the the Gentile believers. So they sent a message to the church of Jerusalem asking for advice. And they say, do we have to follow all of these uh, laws that were given to Moses in order to truly be believers and followers of Christ? And the response is given in what we call the Jerusalem Council there in Acts chapter 15. And the, the response comes back, no, you don't have to follow the law. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ. They did say there are four things that we suggest to you, some of which did involve sin itself, such as uh, the immorality. They were to stay away from that. But then there were some other things that by virtue of abstaining, they were able to, to carry the witness even to others who might be Jewish but not believers. And so this Jerusalem council sets the record straight. Following that chapter, we come to the 16th chapter, and in that particular chapter, we we find Paul now going on his second missionary journey. This one is going to be covered now in chapters 16, 17, and 18. And as he goes on this journey, he's going to be gone this time for three years, and as he goes, it's going to be um, Silas and Timothy and Paul who go on this, and now they go into different regions, Macedonia, Achaia, all the way down into Greece. And they're beginning to introduce the people to faith in Christ. And many churches are established. And so they come back once again and they reestablish their relationship with the church and they find times of refreshment until the Lord sends them on the third missionary journey. And this one is covered now in 14, or pardon me, in four chapters. It's going to last for four years. Paul and a group of others are going to go with him. There, there were, Luke was one of the people and there were other people who, who went along. And, uh, this time they focused their, their ministry in Asia. And at the end of that four year period, Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. But you recall he was being warned by the people by by prophets and by others in the church, that if he goes back, he's going to face a lot of trouble when he gets back there. And he did. He is um, 
falsely accused of doing something that he did not do. It was a, a plot of the, the Jewish leaders of the day to have him arrested. And so now he has to confront this mob and this whole group of, of people are stirred up in the city of Jerusalem against him. And he gives a defense but he is quickly snatched away because the crowd is becoming so uh, violent and, and there is a riot about to take place. And so the centurion takes Paul, or, uh, Paul and, and puts him essentially in protective custody. The next day he has to stand now before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And as he is giving his defense before them, it becomes clear that they have no plan other than to kill him. And so... Paul makes um, a trip under the protection of the Romans and he travels to the city of Caesarea. And in that city, he deals there with a man by the name of Felix who was considered the governor of that land and he gives a defense for his faith. And Felix listens, but Felix wants a payoff. And so he doesn't let Paul go, even though he knows that he's not guilty of anything. When Felix is replaced by another governor by the name of Festus, he maintains the hold on uh, on Paul, but he is confronted this time with the idea that perhaps uh, it would be a good idea to send Paul back down to Jerusalem because uh, that would be a better place for him to be tried, but it's really a plot. The, the, the Jews are going to kill him on the way back to Jerusalem. And so... This time, Paul makes an appeal, and he appeals to Caesar. And once that appeal is given by a Roman citizen, he goes to Caesar. That's it. Well, a fellow by the name of Agrippa, who is in charge of a number of the different regions in this area, he's identified as King Agrippa. He is brought into the confrontation with the Apostle Paul. And, and Agrippa is very interested in this message that Paul's giving. And so he listens to this message and Paul says, you know, I, I know that you believe these things because you have studied the prophets. You know that this person of whom I am speaking has fulfilled all of the things that the prophets said. And Agrippa's response is one of delay. And he says, in such a short time, would you convince me to become a Christian? And Paul says, not only you, but everyone else. I wish you were all here like me, except for my chains. Agrippa says to Festus, this man should have gone free. But because he has made an appeal to Caesar, to Caesar he must go. So we come to the 27th chapter, and what we find is Paul is now making his trip to Rome, and the Lord's hand is upon him to give him safety and protection as he goes. And though he goes through a very difficult time, when we get to the 28th chapter, he is arriving in Rome, and now he is giving a defense for his beliefs, And he is beginning to let us know something very important. His ministry is coming to a close. He's going to die within a few years. In fact, by the year 67, he probably arrived in Rome somewhere around 64 A.D. Uh, Maybe even a little before then, maybe around 62. Somewhere in that area, he arrives in Rome. But he's only got a few years left. And what he wants us to understand is this. 
My ministry is ending, but yours is starting. And so we come to the end of Acts. And I'd like you to turn there in Acts chapter 28 as we begin to look at something that reveals to us what we can expect if we are going to carry out a ministry and a work that God intends for us to carry out. And it's going to be very, very similar to what the Apostle Paul experienced. If you look with me, we're down at verse 17 now in our study. And what is transpiring here is essentially a recognition of uh, all that has gone on before at this point, at least within the life of the Apostle Paul. And it says this, as, as Paul is now being confronted about his beliefs, he is going to, to give this defense. And he says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had done anything of which to accuse my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And now we begin to recognize what is going to happen to the people of God who desire to carry out the mandate that was given by the Lord to spread the gospel throughout the world. You do what God has called you to do and here's what you can expect. You can expect some very hurtful accusations. You can expect things to be said about you that are going to be untrue and accusatory in nature. Paul is being accused of being a rabble-rouser. He's being accused of spreading a false doctrine. He's being accused of turning on the people of Israel, his own people, because he has embraced the person of Christ. Paul is very clear about his attitude toward the Jews. He loves them. They are his people. As a matter of fact, when he penned the words of the book of Romans, he said, I wish that it would be possible for me to be condemned so that the people of Israel could be saved. And he refers to that on two different occasions as he's writing in Romans chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 10. And he expresses how much he loves the Jews. And he also says this, What we were looking for, what our prophets have written about, has been fulfilled and it has come to pass in the person of Christ. As a matter of fact, Judaism has been completed because of the arrival of God the Son, the offspring of Mary, a descendant of David, who has come through the nation of Israel and has presented himself now as the Messiah, the one who takes our sin and pays for it so that we can be forgiven and we can have life. He is being accused of turning on his people because he would not buckle under the pressure that was being placed upon him to conform to a system of belief that was not true.
And because of his courage and because of his faithfulness to the Lord, he finds himself in this situation. And now he's explaining to the people, to those Jewish leaders in the city of Rome, all these things that have been said about me, they're not true. If you expect the world to treat you kindly and you are faithful to Christ and you follow him as he desires, you are going to be sadly disappointed. The world is no friend to grace. The people of the world do not favor the position that we have taken concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And do you know what they do as a result? They level hurtful accusations against us. Do you know what they say about people such as us? Oh, you guys are all self-righteous hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? Usually nobody will say that to your face. But they'll say it about other people who believe the same way that you do. And so in a roundabout way, they're basically telling you, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are a self-righteous hypocrite. You guys think you're so much better than everybody else because you talk about the fact that you're going to heaven and we're going to hell. What they do not grasp is that we're going to heaven because of a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ who gives us a perfect standing before God because we recognize that we don't have a good standing before Him and we need a Savior and we're relying upon Him. And do you know what they say? They say, oh, you think you're perfect, you think you're all okay before God, but I know this, I... I do better things than you do. And the whole basis of their argument is their own capability to do good works that will ultimately commend them to a holy God. Do you know what we're guilty of? Admitting that we're awful sinners. That's our guilt. And, and it, you just, you wonder, why in the world doesn't the world understand this, that what we're telling you is we're terrible people. But we have a wonderful Savior. And because of our Savior, we're going to heaven. Not because of any pride. Not because we think we're able to do better things than the world does. Quite frankly, I see unsaved people sometimes behave better than saved people. Isn't that sad? Because we have been saved for good works. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. (laughs) Boy, what a great secret, right? (laughs) It's going to go out on the internet and all this other stuff. But that's okay because it's the truth. I have found myself shafted by believers when I do business with believers. That unbelievers would never do what the believers have done. Now, I also would say this. The best people I've ever worked with 
who are honest and live with the integrity that the Lord has placed within their hearts are believers. So if you can find the believer who is functioning according to the standards that the Lord has established, you found the best. But the sad part is, there's a whole lot of people who are in business today who do things on a basis that's worse than the world. Did you ever have somebody that that says they're a believer and they're supposed to get a job done for you, but they think because you're a brother in Christ, you'll accept a sloppy job? And then you say, you know, how, how do I complain to my brother about this? Because if I complain, then they're going to get all mad. And then i got to live with them at church, and they're going to snub me, which is another great example of Christian love and grace. And they're going to treat me badly at church, and they're going to spread all the word. Am I the only one that has had stuff like that happen to? No. (laughs) Okay. Boy, that was better than most amens I get. You all know what I'm talking about. Should it be that way? No. So in other words, whatever you do, it ought to be the best. If you say you're going to get a job done, you get it done. And if you say you can do a certain task, you get that task completed. And you do it for a fair price. And you don't mess around because you think, oh, it's just another Christian. They'll understand. And what are they going to do about it? I didn't even plan to say that. Not only will they tell us that we're self-righteous, but then they'll say this. You people don't love. There's no love in you. Why? Because you dare say that if I don't accept Christ as my Savior, I'm going to hell. You are just mean. I don't have to explain this any further. But folks, if you die without Christ and you're going to hell, isn't it mean not to tell somebody about the Savior? That's being mean. Just let you go your way. We're not trying to be mean. We're trying to ring out an alarm that says, unless you trust in Christ and rest in Him for your forgiveness and your eternal life, you will be going to hell. And then you'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. I don't think that that's being mean. I don't think that that's being unloving. I think the loving thing to do is to tell people when something's going to happen to them that's no good. They'll call us closed-minded. Um, we are. Yesterday, um, the Jehovah's Witness hit our house. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't. Well, okay. I really asked the Lord to help me be gracious and to be loving and kind, even when false teachers come our way. And they hit our neighborhood a lot. And they usually hit with, oh, six, eight, ten that go up and down the street. And the first time they walked by, they, they passed me by. I was out working in the yard. And then finally on their way back, one of them had the courage to come up. And they said, sir, we know you're very busy, but would you kindly read this material? And I told them, you know what? I really admire your willingness to do this because I don't see many of us who are followers of Christ putting out that kind of effort to tell people about the truth. And 
After explaining that I admire that, I said, now, you need to understand, we don't agree about one primary issue, and that is that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And we talked about their uh, New World Translation in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, and their translation says, a God, not God. What we know is that that translation, because of the structure, should be translated with a definite article, which indicates that Jesus is God. And when you get down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I said, if Jesus Christ is not God, then what is he? Well, he is a perfect man. He is a sinless man. Well, then how could he die for our sins? Well, he was perfect, so he could die for our sins. And I said, wait a minute. If he was perfect, he had no sin of his own for which to die. Is that correct? Yes. But as a man, how could he take our sin upon himself and pay the penalty of our sin merely as a man? And she had no answer and tried to move on into something else. And, and I understand, they're going to go back, they're going to talk to one of their big guns, they'll probably send the big gun to our house, and then I'll have to go through all of this again. And I will really try to be nice, I, I want you to know that, because we do have the truth, but we don't want to be arrogant about it. And we, you know what, I'd love to see them all come to know Christ as Savior. And that would be a great thing. But, but here is this lady who cannot answer, how could Jesus be merely a man and die for the sins of the world. If he was perfect, it just meant he didn't need to die. But if he is God, he can take the punishment as the infinite being that he is and pay for the sins of the world. And of course, we didn't have time to get into the verses that show that he is God. But the bottom line is this. We're pretty close-minded. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, who took upon himself flesh, became a man, and he was perfect man, but he was also perfect God. And he went to the cross where he had no sin of his own to die for, but as God, the sins of the world could be heaped upon him and he could pay the penalty of our sin. And we're very close-minded about this. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through him. That we're close-minded about. So there, there are going to be these hurtful accusations Let me hurry on. As you go down into verses 21 and 22, then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. You know what else you're going to get if you follow Christ? Bad press. You're going to get bad press. These Jews are giving a response that is rather perplexing. 
on the one hand, it may be that they never did get any word concerning Paul. They may not have had anybody come, and this is what they're saying, we never had anybody come and tell us about all these problems and so forth that you were having back in Jerusalem. Nobody came and told us about that. Uh, so, hey, listen, we haven't heard anything about you. But here's another side to this. That may not be true. You see, these Jewish leaders were in a very, very difficult spot. If you go back to, to Acts chapter 18, you'll find that the person who was the Caesar in Rome had expelled all the Jews. All of them were kicked out of the city of Rome. Somehow between Acts 18 and Acts 28, some have made their way back into the city again. And do you know what they don't want to do? They don't want to make waves. They don't want conflict. They don't want anything to call attention to them as a people. So what are they going to do? They're going to downplay anything that might create a ripple in their existence there in the city of Rome. And so now here is Paul. He's come to them and he's telling them, look, here here are the, the problems that have come up. And, and he begins to identify some of these things that he's being accused of. And it, they kind of summarize it this way. We've heard about this sect. And a sect implies that a heresy has taken place. That the, the belief system of the people who are in that sect have departed from truth. And so Paul is going to have to respond to that and he's going to have to set the record straight. Well, why did they have the opinion that this faith was a sect. Well, they had developed some misconceptions. Why? There were those within the church who professed to know Christ as Savior, but in reality did not. We had an example of that in that one who tried to cast out demons and he used the name of Jesus and of Paul and and then he tried to cast out these demons. And you know what the, the demon said to him? We know Paul. We know Jesus. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> Boy, that what a condemning confrontation. We don't have any clue who you are. So we know that there were those who were trying to reflect a relationship with Christ who really didn't possess one. That's one of the fears that I have had as pastor of this church. That you might be here for years and never have genuinely come to know Christ as your Savior. And what a tragedy that would be. But it's very possible. There were those who were Christians... But they were carnal. They lived the way the world lived. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he, he scolded them because they allowed immorality to go on within the church. A man had taken his father's wife and had been immoral with her, his stepmother. There were those who were coming to the Lord's table and eating like gluttons while others were going hungry. There were those that came to celebrate the Lord's table who were getting drunk 
on the love feast that they had prior to the observance of the Lord's table. And so what kind of a testimony did that leave? Here are people that are living, in some cases, worse than even people in the world. There were charlatans who tried to draw attention to themselves under the guise of being disciples of Christ. How do we know? Do you remember what Pastor Steve read in the book of Philippians? How Paul indicated there were some who were preaching the gospel just to put the screws to me. That's putting it in our vernacular. But that's exactly what it was. There are some who are out there while I'm in prison... And they're preaching the gospel and they're saying, <laughs> you know, Paul's, Paul's in jail, but we're going to be the ones now that are going to step to the front and people are going to know our names. Take that, Paul. And he said, you know what? It doesn't matter as long as Christ is being preached. Wow. And then there was the offense of the cross itself, which is the only legitimate offense We ought not be offensive. But I'll tell you what. The cross offends. It's at the cross that we find forgiveness and eternal life. It's through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that when we place our trust and faith in that, we pass from death into life and we have this free gift that he offers. I look at what happens today and people look at Christianity and they say, you guys, you've got to be a sect. You've got to be heretics because look at this. How many people on September 11th acted as though they were Christians and went to the churches and prayed and sought the Lord. And as soon as their fears were subsiding, they went right back to life as if nothing had happened. Have you all been hearing about the kind of survey they did in New York City to find out how many people are going to be involved in a a worship service where there will be the remembrance of 9-11 and they found the percentages because people, they don't need God right now. But you know what? Something happens and the first question that comes to their mind, where was God when this happened? You know where he was? He was where he has always been. He has been on the throne. And you know what people expect? They expect God to treat us in a sin-cursed world as if we've already made it to heaven. And people want all the benefits of heaven when God is essentially graciously allowing us to see the consequences of sin that brings about death and suffering and hardship. And you must make a choice. How come people aren't standing up today and saying, oh, how good God has been to us. It's been 10 years and we haven't had another attack on this soil. You don't, I don't hear anybody saying that. Why? Because we don't remember how good God is who gives rain and gives sunshine 
and sometimes withholds the rain, and sometimes sends way too much to remind us that there is good and there is evil, and unless you choose the good, which is found in the person of Christ, the consequences of the evil will be with you for all eternity. Folks, we're in a test. We're, We're being tested today. Do you guys like a test? No. I hated tests. But I'll tell you what. Don't tell your teachers this. But I don't really care if you flunk a math test. I really don't. I don't care if you flunk an English test. You better pass your Bible tests. But all eternity depends on whether or not you pass the test of trusting Christ as your Savior. And the same goes for all of us. This is a test we dare not fail. And so I would ask you today, do you know Christ as your Savior? If you do, and if you live for him, you can expect hurtful accusations to come your way. If you know him, you can expect bad press because of all the goofballs that are out there that claim to be Christians. Every kook on the face of the earth is considered a Christian if they call themselves that in spite of what they believe. Who, how many charlatans are out there saying, if you, if you are willing to pray in faith, your diseases will be healed? How many charlatans are out there saying, you know what, the reason you, you can't afford a, a, a Cadillac, and if you drove a Cadillac today, please don't take this personally. But the reason you don't have one is because you don't have enough faith and you haven't sent us money so we could pray over a piece of cloth to send to you to put on your forehead. You might as well stuff it up your nose because there is nothing that that is going to do for you. That is not what the gospel is about. And we are considered kooks because of those kooks. And you're going to get bad press. But you know what? I know Jesus is my Savior. I trust that he has made enough difference in my life that people can see a difference between me and those who don't believe. And I want to tell you this. If they ask me the reason for the hope that lies within me, I want to be ready to give them an answer. I hope you're ready. We'll finish next week. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege it is to share your word and to proclaim it. And Father, on this day of remembrance, we truly do remember the tragedies of the events on September 11th, not only in New York City, but at the Pentagon and in Shanksville, where people of courage stood to fight evil. Father, we know that we are in an evil world and we are part of that evil by virtue of the sinfulness of our own natures. But we know this, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Father, I believe all of us here today 
would echo the words that the Apostle Paul said. Of those sinners, I am chief. Thank you, Father, for sending a Savior, your Son, to pay the penalty of my sin, to be buried following his death, and to rise again from the dead so that I could live. Father, it's my prayer that everybody here can say that same thing personally. Thank you for your word and its truth. In Jesus' name, amen.